Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the word made flesh. We pray that you would enliven the words that I speak, that they would touch our hearts, they would speak to our minds, and they would move our hands to be your body, the body of Christ in this world. Speak to us, Lord. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that could not be counted from every tongue and tribe and people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They cried out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, to the Lamb who is seated on the throne. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and glory be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me and said, Who are these robed in white, and where have they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you are the one who knows. And he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason, they are forever before the throne of God, and they worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them. They will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb who is seated at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of the water of life. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. What an amazing vision. We just need to sit and think about that for a while. That's a vision of heaven. But it's not just a vision of heaven. It's a way forward. What I would like to suggest this morning is this points where we're going. Now that I'm older, I did not say old, older, <clears throat> I've come to the conclu this conclusion about life. It's good to know where you're going. At the beginning of the day, it's good to know what you want to accomplish today. What are you going to do? At the beginning of a year, we pause, and it's good to kind of think about the year. You know, new things you want to do, habits you want to change, where you want to be at the end of the year. It's good. As a matter of fact, we even talk to children about that, don't we? What do you want to be when you grow up? Because if you have some kind of goals of where you're going, there's a better chance you'll get there. If you have no goals or no idea of where you're going, you could be wandering aimlessly through life. We have a son who at one point in his life all of a sudden had a very strong goal. Now, this might sound like a strange goal, but I'll, let, bear with me. He wanted to break the high school long jump and triple jump record. Well, it's, it's a goal, but he stuck to it. He was so focused on it from ninth grade through his senior year that in his junior year, he broke the triple jump record, which may not mean much to you, but triple jump is a very technically difficult jump. It's, you know, left, left, right, and then into the pit. 
And then his, one of his last jumps in his senior year at a regional meet, he broke the long jump record. Got a college scholarship, went off. But what I want to tell you is by focusing on that goal, it changed what he ate. He ate differently. It changed how much he slept. It he wouldn't drink sodas because he found out what sodas did for an athlete's body. It even changed who he dated. He wouldn't date anybody unless they understood athletics and the commitment that it takes for sports. It changed everything about his life. Now, that's just a little thing. That's a goal about jumping. Now, think about what we have here in this image here. This is a goal that's pulling us forward. It's sort of like a vision of where we're going. If that's where we're going, that should sort of reorient all of our lives today. The way that I look at this, the goal that's given to us here is a vision about many languages, one lamb, and no tears. So you can remember that. You may remember nothing else, but you remember the title of the sermon. Many languages, one lamb, and no tears. So first, many languages. Here's a vision to challenge us and pull us forward in our Christian life today. In heaven, every ethnic group in the world will be represented. Now, the way that I see it is <clears throat> when John saw this vision, if you can imagine John is, you know, the Eastern Mediterranean world, he sees this vision, he is so overwhelmed, he never imagined or dreamed that people were so different because he hadn't seen them all. He had not seen a Chinese person. And so if you look at what it says here, he doesn't just say, oh, there are lots of different people. No, he said, there were pe I couldn't count all these people. They were from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and all languages. You see, he says it four ways because it's just so overwhelming. He doesn't just say there's a lot of different people. He, he just, he's, it's like he's stammering about the great diversity of peoples in heaven. What a shock it must have been to him. He saw Bataks from Sumatra. He saw Bantus from East Africa, Hakka Chinese and Hokkien Chinese, German Jews and Tayals from Taiwan. He even saw Swedish Americans. <laughs> and he saw Mom and Achi people from Guatemala. This inclusion of all ethnic groups only happens by intentional mission work. As we know, people do not always naturally reach out to people who are different from us. We often find people like ourselves and stay there. We, we tend to be with our own. But how about some stories about how this happens intentionally? We intentionally look for the different person and cross cultures. I've been blessed to have been involved in training cross-cultural ministries, missionaries in Singapore, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, those are two different cities, and in Pasadena, California. So Nancy and I have met many people involved in this part of John's vision. For example, there is a Korean woman who raised, she actually is a Korean Canadian, raised in Vancouver. From high school, she wanted to be a missionary among Kazakhs. How many people think about that in their 18 years old? So what does she do? She goes to Russia, and she majors in philology in St. Petersburg. So she was the, actually the first non-Russian to study the Russian language and philology as a foreigner. And then she goes from there 
to Kazakhstan to work among Russian immigrants and the Russian army that ended up settling in Kazakhstan. And she worked there for six or eight years planting a church. But that's unbelievable. Those Kazakhs, Russian, ethnic Russians that were in Kazakhstan, now are Christian. So there's another group of people standing around the throne from another ethnic group because somebody intentionally from Vancouver whose family was raised in Korea, whose grandfather was a martyr in Pyongyang, goes to Russia and then to Kazakhstan. I pastored a church in Singapore named Covenant Presbyterian Church, mostly all Chinese, a few Indians. They were sending Chinese missionaries to work among Chinese in Fiji because the, the Chinese in Fiji had no Christian witness. They also sent a Chinese to work with Muslims in Senegal. All of this because of their commitment to this vision. I also had a student in Singapore, a Singaporean Chinese, who went to work in Phnom Penh when Cambodia began to open up. And so he had to learn uh, Khmer. Two other uh, East Malaysian Chinese came to Singapore to study, and then one of them ended up working with Vietnamese refugees in Cambodia. But those Vietnamese refugees would not be reached unless somebody intentionally was willing to cross the culture divide, learn another language, and lead people to faith in Christ. If we don't cross cultural barriers, if we don't actually go, this part of the vision will not be fulfilled. Now let's be honest. Today, this vision of John is very countercultural. Not only in the United States, but throughout the world, there is resistance, fear, and even violence against the other. When we insist on including people who are different, when we insist on being more multicultural in the name of Jesus, there will be resistance. However, there is little more at the core of God's will and of God's kingdom than including every tongue and tribe and people and nation. It's clear here that because of Jesus, we will build bridges and not walls. Because of Jesus, we will learn to eat strange foods. Because of Jesus, we will learn new languages. Because of Jesus, we will lose our culturally insecure friends and make new, different-looking friends. Because of Jesus, we will hold lightly to our culture as we embrace other cultures. This is all because of Jesus, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God, one Lamb. Many languages were all included in this kingdom vision, but there's only one Lamb. In heaven, all of these different groups of people are focused in the same place, and that's around the Lamb who is seated on the throne. This also is countercultural. We live in a culture of many religions, many gods, many truths, many paths. Here, there is one center and one alone holding all of the nations of the world together in proper worship. If the first vision is a vision of mission, the second vision is a vision of worship. Mission is all-inclusive. Worship is singularly focused. It's focused on Jesus Christ. Mission is to many cultures, worship is of one lamb. Worship of the one true lamb, Jesus Christ, makes inclusion of all the nations possible 
and glorious. Lamb is used of Jesus 28 times in Revelation. It's the main image of Jesus. Why is that so? The lamb is not only gentle, but the lamb, most importantly, is slain. It's the sacrificial lamb. All of the nations are united together because Jesus is the sacrificial lamb for all the nations. Jesus died for our sins, and so he can unite us together. Our worship should be focused on Jesus, who is the only and the complete answer to the sin problem. All of the nations of the world, or at least representatives from all the nations and languages of the world, are all focused on the Lamb. There are not multiple lambs or lords. There is only one. Neither are there many paths to the one. There is only one Lamb and one place to worship, and that's at the foot of the throne of the Lamb. Now, when I uh, read over this this morning, I all of a sudden thought about my office. You're all welcome to come and visit me sometime, by the way. It's a wonderful seminary. But I sit in my office, and I had a gift from a uh, Christian in Egypt, a big piece of leather, probably uh, a lamb, and burned on the leather, like you burn on wood, burned on the leather is an image of Jesus on the throne. And I hang it above my chair, So every day when I sit down and I read my Bible and answer my email, I sit at the feet of Jesus. I sit at the feet of Jesus. It's a great reminder for me that everything I do, I do under his lordship and his guidance. Sometimes it's good to have something to remind you of who you are and where you are. And that's what this image is here. Everybody is at the feet of Jesus. The message is clear. Jesus in Revelation is held up as the victorious one and the only sacrifice for the sins of the world. There is no other. Many languages, but only one Lord. The Lamb who is the Lord centers all the nations and diverse groups together. They all, we all, find our center in Jesus Christ, the one for many. All the nations are offered the same overabundance of love and grace and beauty. And that love has a name, Jesus. This may be the hardest teaching in the passage for those in the West, but it is the key teaching for us today. Today, many people will support our call for diversity, for encouraging diverse cultures and races. In some places, it's popular. But this is not a lone principle. We must have more minority candidates, more Hispanic, more African-American applicants. No. For the Christian, it is far, far more precious, more fundamental, more essential. It is because Jesus is on the cosmic throne that we must include all peoples. Diversity is not an ideology. It is a theology. It is based on the identity of God who created all the nations of the world and of Jesus who redeemed all the nations of the world and of the Holy Spirit who's poured out in Acts chapter 2 giving languages of the world expression in worship of Jesus Christ. It's Trinitarian. Diversity of cultures in worship of the Lamb is life and health and peace and justice. It is the redemption of the nations. So here is where the Christians will be criticized, alienated, and ostracized today. The world likes that we talk about diversity, and as we see, we talk about justice and wiping away tears. 
The world likes the first and the third point of my sermon is what I mean. But we absolutely insist that points one about languages and point three about no more tears are held together by my second point, point, and that's the one lamb. We support reaching out to all cultures and wiping away all tears because of injustices on the world because Jesus is on the throne. The problem of racism and cultural tensions find their answer in the single worship of Jesus Christ on the throne. The solitary worship of Jesus holds us all together. He is our peace. He is the only hope of the nations today. Sometimes Muslims and atheists know this better than we do, friends. There was a young Muslim man from Sudan who came to faith in Christ he studied, went to uh, Khartoum, where he studied about Jesus. And then he felt called by God to go to Darfur to set up a Christian school. Now, I don't know if you remember much about Darfur in the newspapers, but it's about 99.9% Muslim. And a lot of those people in Darfur were very angry Muslims because they'd been persecuted. So he went there and he sat with the uh, Muslim chiefs and they sat around a circle. I actually have a videotape of this on my computer. I probably should have shown it for you. They're sitting around this circle out in the middle, no trees or anything, it's out in the desert. And as they're sitting there, he begins to explain to them that he wants to set up a school because he says, the reason we're being so persecuted is we're illiterate. Now these are not his people. But we as Muslims are Ill illiterate, so we will set up a school for you so the kids can learn to read and we can be protected. And the, one of the chiefs got up and said, no, we don't want you Christians to set up a school. Muslims are killing us and we're Muslims. Our Muslim brothers are killing us. We want you instead to teach us about Jesus. Now that's interesting. They observed that even though Christians are a different religion, the Christians were the ones who wanted to set up a school. The Christians were the ones who brought in food. The Christians are the ones who set in NGOs to help care for their people. And so in the end, he established a church in Darfur, the first one ever. All people need to hear about the love of Jesus. I had a faculty member at Fuller, her name is Evelyn Reisachet. She, when she was 12 years old, raised in a very Muslim area of Paris, France. One night she was confused about life and everything as a little 12-year-old, and she walked in for the first time in her life to this big church. And she sat down and she looked at the cross. She was confused by it all. And then she sat down and she found a Bible and she started reading about Jesus. And Jesus met her that night. Direct revelation. Jesus met her. She came out just telling all of her Muslim friends about Jesus. Eveline just passed away a year ago, but she spent 55 years of her life telling Muslims about Jesus in North Africa, in Paris, France, and in L.A. County. Many languages, one lamb. She wrote an amazing book. I will not promote my book today. Thank you for promoting my book today. I will promote her book. It's called Joyful Witness in the Muslim World. Did you catch that? Joyful Witness in the Muslim World. Because for her, it was all joy to tell people about Jesus. Many languages, every tongue, every race, every nationality, but one God, one lamb, 
This is the worship that we experience. But there's no tears. There's no tears. I had a student that we sent out from Pittsburgh Seminary, the first student we ever sent out on a mission trip, and he went to Berlin to work with Kurdish refugees. Now, I don't know if you know much about Kurdish refugees, but Kurds are persecuted all the time. There are certain groups of people who have constantly been persecuted through history, and the Kurds are one of those groups. And they're persecuted by Iraqis, by Turks, by Iranians, wherever they go. There used to be a little nation of Kurdistan that was wiped out. And so many of them are refugees in Germany. And so our student went to work there with a group of people who have been working for 15 years with Kurdish refugees in Berlin. And while he was there, after 15 years, finally some of these Kurdish chieftains came to the church and wanted to ask a question. Why are you Christians helping us Muslims? And so they planned this meeting. They prayed for it. They met in the church dining hall. But in the church dining hall, there was a big picture at the end of the room of the Last Supper. And so they're struggling about how to kind of start this conversation because they don't want to cut off the relationship with the Muslims. If they start talking about Jesus and Christianity, they're afraid they're going to lose them. And so as they're sitting there at the table, the men are sitting around the table, the women in the back looking after the children. It's a very emotional moment. And so the pastor starts to speak, and then all of a sudden one of the children blurts out, who's that man? He looks mean. Who is, who is the little child pointing to? Judas. Looked at Judas. And so that was the opening. So the pastor says, oh, well, that's, his name is Judas, and uh, <clears throat> let me explain why he's, he's mean. Uh, so they use the, the Last Supper picture to explain. You see, Jesus is right there in the middle, and Jesus was a really nice man. He, he, he was just like, he loved everybody. He healed people. He preached to them about how to be gentle and kind. He talked about the poor. He healed blind people. He healed lame people. He even raised somebody from the dead. But this was one of Jesus' followers, like one of his students. And he betrayed him. He turned him over to the officials. And then they, the officials took him and they nailed him to a cross. And he died and he bled to death. And as they're listening, the Kurt, one of the Kurdish leaders stood up and said, we want to know about Jesus because he would understand us. We have been betrayed by our own people, and we have suffered because of that betrayal. Tell us more about this, Jesus. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. I was deeply moved by some of your worship here today as you talked about how God will turn the evil intent for something good and beautiful. That's absolutely true. That was a wonderful preparation for my sermon. Thank you so much, Jesus, for orchestrating this service. This final vision is an ethical vision. It's a vision of love. And love, friends, has a name, Jesus. Jesus shows love incarnate, not as an idea, but as a way of living, Read the Gospels with this in view. Just read about Jesus' life and you see how he was in the business of wiping away every tear. Here we see a vision that shows that God understands our suffering. I have found that life is filled with suffering. I've experienced some of that myself. And I'm sure most of you, if we sat down for a while, we could talk about our suffering that we've experienced Yesterday, Nancy and I attended a memorial service for a friend's wife. She, or I should say actually the family, suffered for over four years with her brain tumor. 
It's hard to imagine four years of suffering, a person dying slowly with a brain tumor. We don't have to dig very deeply to find suffering all around us. For years, I've been working on a book on Asian Christianity. I haven't been able to work much the last seven months. I've been busy in a new job, <clears throat> so I hope to get back to it. But at each turn, from each nation and each decade, from decade to decade, I'm overwhelmed by the suffering of the church in the 20th century. It is absolutely remarkable. It's a remarkable history. Even after studying and knowing the history of Christianity up to the 20th century with all the war and violence, I was, I was overwhelmed that it's so much worse in the 20th century. The Christian population in the Middle East was decimated in the 20th century. Violence against Christians in Pakistan, Iran, Vietnam, Korea, China, the Japanese in China under the communists. And there's so much more to tell of the suffering of the church, and it continues today. Most of us are not aware of the suffering of tribal Christians in Vietnam, or of the Karen and the Kachin in Myanmar, or of Christians in Pakistan, or Bihar in India. Tears? And then there's Puerto Rico. It's estimated that more than 3,000 churches were destroyed or severely damaged in the great hurricane, and 3,000 people died, Hurricane Maria. What about the Kurds who continue to suffer, caught between modern empires, and have we forgotten Darfur? The numbers are staggering. 2.5 million people were displaced, homeless, 2.5 million. And then the ethnic cleansing of another one million, or ha between a half and one million people. That's just, just hard to imagine. And then what about the annual devastations from monsoons in Bangladesh? The death toll from the coronavirus continues. I checked New York Times today. Over 800 people now continuing to rise. Our world is filled with tears. God knows, and God is compassionate. He's compassionate. That means he suffers with us. Think about Psalm 56, verse 8. Thou hast kept count of my tossings. Put thou my tears in thy bottle. Are they not all in your book? That, to me, is one of the most amazing verses of the Psalms. I'll translate it from the King James. You have kept count of my tossings at night. God, you have put my tears in a bottle. Are they not in your book? He's kept track of all of your suffering. He knows. God knows the suffering in the world. He knows it intimately. He is aware of the sleepless nights in refugee camps, exposed to the elements and exposed to human greed and violence. God's tears are mingled with ours. But he says to us today, they will hunger no more. They will thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat. And then right in the middle, for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. And then he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is such a beautiful verse because right in the middle, it's the lamb at the center of the throne who'll be their shepherd. And so there won't even be any more hunger and there won't be any more thirst. It's amazing poetic passage of hope. This is our God with the lamb at the center of the throne. It is the body of Christ, Jesus, that now takes on the sufferings of the world. Did you know that? It's the church 
that takes on the sufferings of the world now. It's our responsibility, the church. I was flying to Atlanta once and inadvertently sat next to somebody I hadn't seen for 15 years, and he says, oh, Coach Sunquist. That's another part of my identity. I used to coach for about six years soccer teams. And this was one of the dads. And I remember him very well because he found out that I was an ordained pastor and I was teaching at a seminary. And so he'd give me a hard time about that because he was very, very secular. He was an outright angry atheist. So here we are sitting on the plane together. <clears throat> so I asked him where he's going. He says, well, I'm going to New Orleans. New Orleans? Oh, because of Katrina. Yeah, the hurricane. I'm going to go and, and work there. But you know, it took me a month to find a way to get there to work with somebody. I said, why was it so hard? Well, you know, I'm not a Christian, and the only groups I could work with who were going to help out Katrina, they were all church groups. So I'm going with the Methodists. <laughs> I said, well, God bless the Methodists. Isn't that interesting? If you want to be involved in helping to wipe away tears, you've got to find a church, because that's what we're in the business of. You can't just go out and find some secular groups and say, let's go out and do something nice. Why would you do something nice? Because our life is a life participating in the life of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, to live in Jesus Christ, who is the missionary of God. Isn't that interesting? So when we live our life in Jesus Christ, we're living our life in the life of Jesus, who's the missionary of God. We've had a mission vision here this morning, many languages. We've got to live into that, work into that. A worship vision focused on Jesus. Little story, I'm sorry, I just thought of this story. I was at a liberal seminary once doing a lecture, and somebody heard me talk a lot about Jesus, and he came up to me and said, Sunquist, you got like a Jesus fetish. Yeah, I just talk about Jesus all the time. I said, well, thank you, sir. I'm glad you noticed. But can you believe that? For a liberal to talk about Jesus a lot is kind of odd or confusing. We can't help it because that's our life. Our life is in Jesus. A worship vision of the one lamb and now a compassion vision of no more tears. This too is a vision for our church. And yet this vision of heaven is really a way of seeing what is on God's heart now. Jesus is to be honored. All people are to be loved into the kingdom. The poor are to be defended. The wounded are to be healed. The unloved are to be loved. That is what God will do. That is what God is doing. That is what God did in Jesus Christ, and that is what the church is for. The church, living into this vision, is the one hope for the world. The church, living into this future, allowing this future to pull us forward, is a signpost of God's kingdom. As I said at the opening, we need to have a goal or a purpose in life, both for us as individuals and actually for our families too. Wouldn't it be nice to have this as a motto over your dining room table? Many languages, one lamb, no tears. And your neighbors come in and say, what's that you have over your table? What's that all about? Oh, that's our family motto. That's the way we live, constantly telling our kids they've got to meet people from other cultures, think about living somewhere else, including people that are different. And we're always talking about Jesus every day, and we're always looking for people who are hurt that we can help, ways that we can alleviate suffering. But it's also a vision for our church. 
If you were to fashion your mission plan for your church around this one half of Revelation, that would be enough until Jesus returns. Can we also pass on this vision to our children? Many languages, one lamb, no tears. Jesus, impress upon our hearts this beautiful vision from Revelation. Make us to be more like Jesus in wiping away tears, reaching across cultural and class divides, and focusing our lives on the life of Jesus. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.